from the studios of Postscript Media and Canary Media. You know, we've been talking a lot about this green industrial strategy unfolding in America in recent weeks. And the concept of an industrial strategy, it's as old as the country itself. The green part stretches back a couple of decades. And as we evaluate the Biden team's approach to building back domestic manufacturing and building up climate-positive infrastructure, I keep coming back to this question. What makes the current push different from the Obama-era one? I mean, certainly the dollars and the ambition are bigger, but so are China's and so are a lot of other countries. And many of the promises from the Obama era, uh, a million EVs on the roads by 2015, uh, owning 40% of the world's battery manufacturing, creating a million new manufacturing jobs, they just didn't materialize as expected. So I don't think you can answer this question, will America do it differently, without exploring the factors behind the demise of some companies in the Cleantech 1.0 era, in particular, the story of A123 Systems. And that's why I was so attracted to a recent feature written by Gabrielle Coppola. I'm a, a reporter at Bloomberg News in Detroit, and I cover the auto industry. What's changed the most since you started covering that sector? Politicians care about manufacturing again. I thought we I thought America always cared about manufacturing. It used to be just lip service. Now they're actually trying to make it come back. And so pretty much everyone has accepted or capitulated to the reality that EVs are the future and this is happening. The industry-wide push to build more electric cars and build them domestically has its roots in the economic meltdown after the 2008 financial crisis. Because you have to remember the context, uh, GM and Chrysler had just collapsed. Americans are buying significantly fewer cars. Ford sales have dropped 31%. General Motors and Chrysler sales have plunged more than 40%. The U.S. economy was in free fall, and we thought we are at risk of another Great Depression. I mean, it was that bad. The government steered $80 billion to prop up GM and Chrysler. Both companies eventually went bankrupt, and the new Obama White House steered the sell-off of Chrysler's assets to fiat, and it took part ownership of GM. President Barack Obama says the U.S. government finds itself in an unwelcome position, poised to become the largest stakeholder in General Motors. Obama said, all right, Detroit, you know, we're going we're gonna to spend an enormous amount of political capital here to bail you out. Um, but in return, you have to make more fuel-efficient vehicles. The Obama team also saw the bailout as a chance to encourage production of electric cars. And as part of the 2009 economic stimulus package, it issued a $249 million grant to an up-and-coming company with a novel cathode for lithium-ion batteries. Right over here is president and CEO of A123 Systems, a company that produces advanced batteries for energy storage and next-generation vehicles. A123, their sort of core intellectual property was this thing called nanophosphate. Basically, the speed at which their batteries could charge and discharge was really good. So this is what's possible in a clean energy economy. These folks right here, doing extraordinary work. You know, you would get instant torque in a car, you know, so that was very appealing. Uh, also, they were an American company. And so I think in this moment where the American auto industry was crumbling and its future was very much in question, the idea that there could be uh, an American battery company that could be part of this sort of next chapter of the auto industry where they would start to build a more sustainable future, uh, that was very promising. 
As bad as things were for the auto industry at this time, they were looking great for A123 Systems. They'd pulled in tens of millions of dollars in private equity. They'd signed deals to put their batteries in power tools. They were talking with the military. Electric cars were an emerging investment category. And just weeks after getting the quarter-billion-dollar government grant, A123 got another big boost. Chrysler had actually made a public announcement at the New York Auto Show, we're going to make electric cars with A123. And you had the CEO of A123 saying, we're going to do this. And in the fall of 2009, a year after one of the greatest financial meltdowns in history, the startup went public. So A123 does an IPO that September 2009 because the market sees, wow, they've got this government backing, which was that grant was going to be enough money to help them build two factories in Michigan, an electrode um, coating plant and an actual cell assembly plant to make batteries. The leaders of A123 Systems today are confirming plans to hire 2,000 additional employees. Recent studies suggest 20% of all lithium battery production worldwide will be centered in Michigan by 2015. Hopes were high, but then the company's prospects unwound quickly. A failed partnership, a battery recall, and a stunted EV market all cratered demand. So A123, with the help of the government, invested in all this capacity to make batteries. And then what happened is the demand wasn't there. A123 Systems made it official. The American battery maker is being sold to Wanjiang Group after a bankruptcy auction. The Chinese company won the bidding with its $256.6 million offer, beating out Johnson Controls and Japan's NEC Corp. A123 Systems was supposed to represent the next generation of U.S. manufacturing. Instead, it showed how America excels at inventing new energy technologies, but not building them. So I think the fact that the government did not step up further, yeah, I think it was the death knell. That was their last chance, and it didn't come through. didn't happen. This is The Carbon Copy. I'm Stephen Lacey. This week, the story of A123 Systems and what it tells us about the complicated push for a green industrial renaissance. The entire solar industry rests, both literally and figuratively, on a vulnerable material. That material is aluminum. It is one of the most carbon-intensive metals, with the bulk of its supply originating in China. But what if module frames made from domestic recycled steel replaced it? On May 30th, Latitude Media and Origami Solar will host a frontier forum that explores what would happen if the U.S. solar industry shifted from aluminum to recycled steel. We'll explore the impact on supply chains, costs, technical performance, and carbon emissions. This is a must-attend for anyone who cares about the domestic solar industry. Register for free by clicking the link in the show notes or go to latitudemedia.com slash events. The technology that A123 Systems pioneered, a lithium-iron phosphate cathode, was not a failure. It is the dominant chemistry in lithium-ion batteries coming out of China today. In fact, Ford is building a $3.5 billion battery production facility in Michigan to serve its EV models. And the Chinese partner, Contemporary Amperex Technology, the biggest battery maker in the world, uses its own variation of this chemistry. And as Gabrielle points out in her story, the great irony is that an American company could have been that supplier. It's sort of like this is the consequence of our lack of industrial policy. 
it's just this big symbolic reminder of how we just dropped the ball, um, of how our system did not work, I don't think. As, you know, for, it didn't work in terms of long-term strategic bets on where we want to go. So the technology that we're talking about is lithium iron phosphate mm. um, uh, for the cathode in a battery. It was discovered and improved by U.S. researchers. Can you just explain the significance of that discovery of the chemistry and its subsequent commercialization by A123 Systems? Back in the, this is in the mid-90s, 1995, uh, is when John Goodenough and his team um, discovered that LFP, you could make a viable cathode that was stable, cheaper than like the nickel out of the nickel-based batteries on the market. At the time, you know, battery technology uh, is still pretty young. It was only lithium-ion batteries were developed like in the 1970s. So at the time, you know, you had the Sony Walkman that came out in 1991 that used lithium cobalt oxide. So battery scientists were always looking to find something that was cheaper, better, more powerful. So when Goodenough discovered LFP, this was sort of, there weren't that many viable materials that can, you can make a battery out of, and this represented a whole new category. So the significance of it is that, yeah, America invented, American scientists discovered a new battery chemistry that was cheaper and more stable than what existed on the market at that time. And they did try to commercialize it, but they were not very successful. So let's go jump back into the timeline. Yeah. So A123 has some government money. Partnerships are forming in consumer electronics and in the automotive business. They're expanding. They're hiring hundreds of people. And then things suddenly took a turn and then spiraled. What happened? Even though they were having a lot of talks with people, all of that is contingent on actual sales of electric cars or hybrid. Like, you you know, there has if you're a supplier, you know, you know, A123 had invested all this capacity. They had built these plants. They had all this capacity to make batteries. And, and anyone who's, you know, familiar with manufacturing, <laughs> you know, it's a lot tougher than like, oh, hey, I just wrote an app and now I'm generating some revenue or something. You basically invest billions of dollars or hundreds of millions of dollars up front. And then in order to actually make a return on that investment, you need volume. You need to make a lot. You need to utilize all of that capacity that you just invested in. Really, I think one of the really tough things for them was Chrysler that year, that same 2009, you know, was basically uh, sold to the Italian car maker Fiat, uh, uh, who was led by Sergio Marchionne, who is sort of like a rock star, you know, uh, CEO in the auto world. He's just known as one of the sort of craftiest, smartest, most brilliant strategic minds, you know, and he was able to turn Chrysler from sort of like a, on it, turn it from being on its deathbed to like a very profitable you know, car company. When when Sergio Marchionne got in there, he was notorious for hating EVs. He just thought they were money losers. He just thought it was bad business. And he probably wasn't wrong about that. It wasn't a great way to make money. And he needed to be making money because this company was like on its deathbed and had gone bankrupt. So he basically, uh, you know, a new CEO comes in, everything that the previous management was doing out the window. There's a new, new sheriff in town. So he ended up... Uh, that, like basically ripping up the deal with uh, A123 and picking uh, Bosch. So um, basically A123 lost its anchor contract to make, uh, you know, hybrids or make electrified cars. So that was one kind of blow that kind of sort of started to rattle <laughs> things a bit. So everything looked really promising for A123 going into that IPO because they had government money and they had this big uh, contract with Chrysler. And then 
shortly after that, things started to fall apart. Chrysler reneged on the deal. Um, sales of the Volt, I think, uh, that even though uh, they had not won, they lost the deal to LG for to supply the Chevy Volt. But still, that was a big test of demand, and it was not a big success. So the automakers who had started to put money into this, into making electrified cars, were realizing that people didn't want to buy them, didn't want to buy their product. Things changed pretty dramatically for A123 when the, there was this failed test drive of a Fisker Karma. Fisker, by the way, was an auto manufacturer supported by the government that went bankrupt as well. Um, so the, 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 this particular Fisker model was running on A123 systems technology. What happened? Why was that such a pivotal moment? Mm. Well, it's interesting because if you, uh, I think, again, there was sort of a conventional wisdom A1, about A123, and then there's what I lay out in my story. And the conventional wisdom was that uh, the recall the Fisker recall killed A123. Um, and you could, and the, there's a lot of truth to that. I would say the Fisker recall was like the the death, the final blow. Like they were already kind of <laughs> wavering and then the Fisker recall killed, you know, pushed them over the edge. So what happened was, you know, they were really struggling with demand. You know, they had all these contracts, but the, the car makers kept, cutting back the volume of what they actually wanted because things weren't selling or it was also the financial crisis. I mean, you know, it was not a great (laughs) business environment. The economy wasn't great at the time. So they were very weak because they didn't have enough customers or didn't have enough, they had customers, but those customers weren't ordering enough batteries. So they were already shaky. They were weak. And then with this Fisker recall, what happened was, right, there was a problem with some of the pouch cell batteries in those, in the Karma, Fisker Karma hybrid. A123, you know, went back and did an investigation at the plant and they figured out, okay, we didn't seal the pouch properly and this is a problem. Um, So Dave Yu, the CEO, decided to recall and replace the batteries and all the Fiskars they had already supplied. And the actual recall itself was not, ended up being much less worse than feared. It wasn't a huge financial blow. There was never any, like, thank God, like nobody died. There was no catastrophic fire, nothing like that. But it was the optics they A123 it also was going to go into grid storage because that's another great use for LFP batteries and uh they were lining up financing with Wall Street to you know finance some grid projects and when that recall happened they were dropped so because people did, I mean people say ooh look at this shaky startup ooh they had a recall that must mean their technology is actually not that good and so people dropped them it was all about perception people started to perceive them as the, their technology is questionable Oh, they just had this recall. When reality now, I mean, reporting, doing what I've done and understanding battery manufacturing, like recalls are, look at LG. LG has been doing this for a very long time. They're one of the most established battery makers in the world. They had to do a $1.9 billion recall on the Chevy Bolt with GM in 2021. So I'm not saying that everybody should be, yes, maybe someday we will get to a point where the technology is so good that batteries don't have flaws. But especially for a startup that's young, that's, you know, struggling and racing to, you know, survive, are you going to have a mistake? Okay, it happened. Does that mean that the whole company is trash and you should discard it and let it die? Maybe not, but that's what happened. Mark your calendars for May 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern. That's when Latitude Media and Origami Solar will unveil new research on how recycled steel can help reinvigorate the U.S. solar industry. Why recycled steel? 
Well, the solar industry is dependent on imported aluminum for frames, leaving it vulnerable to geopolitics, supply disruptions, and higher-cost transportation. By switching from aluminum to recycled steel, solar producers can reduce greenhouse gas emissions and qualify for IRA domestic content incentives. Have questions about the shift to steel and the impact on supply chains? Join Latitude Media's Stephen Lacey, Origami Solar CEO Greg Patterson, and American Clean Power's MJ Shao for this live virtual event. Again, it's May 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern. Register for free at latitudemedia.com slash events or click the link in the show notes. In October of 2012, A123 Systems filed for bankruptcy. It fed into this narrative from conservatives that government clean energy investments were a failure. It put the Obama White House on its heels further. And then the story took another ironic twist in 2013. Well, that company since filed for bankruptcy. And now we are hearing concerns over the sale of the company to a Chinese company with deep ties to the Communist Party. The bankruptcy sale has gotten U.S. lawmakers angry, especially considering A123 took a federal grant for $249 million in a renewable energy initiative. Yes. So uh, originally when A123 went bankrupt, they actually had uh, Johnson Controls, which is another big auto supplier that had their own battery business. That was sort of their stocking horse bidder. That's who opened the bidding uh, to buy their assets. Uh, But Wang Chung came in, and Wang Chung at the time was the biggest auto parts company in China. China already had this 10-year strategy of, okay, we want to go towards batteries, electric vehicles. Wang Chung comes in, um, and they just keep offering more money. And if you're an investor who wants to be made whole or preserve your capital because you invested day one, two, three, you want the highest bidder. So um, Wang Chung won the, you know, they won the bidding process, but that still had to be uh, vetted by CFIUS, a group of different federal agencies that get together and analyze M&A or sales to make sure that U.S. you know IP or interests, our national interests are protected. So CFIUS approved the deal. And um, that was actually one of the most fascinating pieces of the story for me was um, actually found this uh, op-ed uh, from Admiral Dennis Blair, who had been the former U.S. Director of National Intelligence under Obama. There's this amazing quote in his op-ed where he says, like, there are many things that the U.S., Many technologies the U.S. should seek to protect lithium-ion battery manufacturing is not one of them. So he's basically saying, um, you know, it's okay to sell this because we don't, this is not crucial to our national security, which that just to me speaks volumes about what the U.S.'s mentality was at the time. Tesla wasn't a big deal yet. China was still at the beginning of executing this plan. So we said, sure, give it, we don't really need this, you know. Give it to the Chinese, let them make stuff. That'll help them grow their economy. And, you know, then we can all be friends. That was the hope. They knew there was maybe it wouldn't work out, but they were willing to bet on that. So today, China accounts for 83% of all lithium ion battery manufacturing, according to Bloomberg New Energy Finance. Um, and, and this lithium iron phosphate technology, which was pioneered in America, is uh, the dominant cathode chemistry coming out of China. Um, 10 or 15 years ago, that didn't have to be the outcome, did it? Absolutely not. I mean, I think that, you know, hi, I want to be fair. Like, hindsight is twenty twenty. Nobody has a time machine. It, it is, I mean, to be honest, it is very hard to imagine a world in which Obama would, like, in the midst of the 2012 presidential election and at a time when America was still very much believing in the knowledge economy is the future and it's okay to outsource manufacturing because we can just write, teach everyone to write code and that'll just be like this sort of natural evolution of our economy. 
That was the, you, you would have had to change the entire zeitgeist of like American capitalism to save 8123. But what's hap- what I think should happen now is that we should do that or at least question it or tweak it. I'm, and I want to be clear, like, I am not saying that I do not think that America should have a command economy. I'm not saying I not advocating that's what we should do. I'm saying that we need to look at the Chinese model. We need to rethink our own model in order to effectively respond to it and protect our interests. That means that we need a manufacturing base. And I think politicians realize that now, but I'm still worried that our own kind of internecine political infighting and partisanship can threaten that, you know, because when it comes to politics, theater, you know, that look at A123. I mean, that was, it was all about political theater and using that as leverage to win the election. And we frittered away what could have been an amazing opportunity to have the U.S. be at the center of a next generation technology. So I'm just saying, let's not do it again this time. (laughs) And this story is so important because it tells us so much about what could potentially happen or what we want to avoid here in the U.S. as the Biden administration ramps up its green industrial strategy. And China has clearly rewritten the rules of the game and, and the U.S. is trying to figure out how to play competitively within those rules or rewrite its own rules. Um, now, we have seen a, a bunch of new activity as a result of the CHIPS Act and the in the IRA. We've seen about 100 new clean energy manufacturing facilities that um, have been announced or uh, for build-out or expansion. Um, it's about $70 billion of investment, according to Canary Media. And um, there, you know, there's, there's a lot happening. There's a lot that could go wrong potentially. I guess the question is, is this enough to compete with China? Um, no, it's not. We're, there's, we're nowhere near the scale that uh, China is, and I don't think we're going to get there overnight. China has a lot more people than we do, and they make a lot more stuff than we do. Um, and people is power, you know, population. But is it enough to um, make sure we can preserve our own standing and make sure that we can have a piece of the pie and, and be competitors and at least at least own our own market? I think there's a good shot at that, but we've got to kind of stay the course. But I think the general sort of conventional wisdom around A123, up until I wrote my story, maybe now people will look at it differently, but the conventional wisdom was we were just too early. And for example, I know Jennifer Granholm, who's now the Secretary of Energy, you know, in the Biden administration, at the time she was the governor of Michigan, and she was very involved in trying to get A123 going and supporting them and building those factories, because obviously Michigan was going through a traumatic time of losing thousands and thousands of jobs in the auto industry. And what she said, Dave View, the CEO of A123, told me, she said, you were just too early. And I think what's implicit in that mentality, and this is the way we think about things in America because we are a capitalist system and we believe in free markets, is that the market decides. You know, If something has value, the market will fund it and help it succeed. And if it doesn't, then it deserves to die. Like That's kind of the mentality. That's the kind of capitalist, you know, um, survival of the fittest mentality, you know, and I think our system, our, our economic system, our finance system, our, our government, we just looked at it as, all right, well, that failed, you know, just sell it off for parts, you know. And um, I will say there was a tremendous amount of political pressure on the Obama administration at the time because Solyndra had happened, um, Fisker was in trouble, you know, 2012 was an election year, you had Mitt Romney name-checking, calling out a one two three. Uh, Solyndra on the campaign trail in presidential debates. And the optics were really bad. It looked like 
Obama had taken government money and thrown it into a bad bet, and he had wasted taxpayer dollars, and that made him politically vulnerable. And so politically, it wasn't tenable for politicians to take a long view on this. Um, but I think that just speaks to our kind of stunted view of um, supporting new technologies, because even if you talk about what the Obama, I mean, I'm sorry, the Biden administration is doing now, you know, they're making a lot of bets. They're giving out a lot of grants, loans. Um, the DOE is, um, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, is everything going to be a home run? I guarantee you not. But does that mean it, they never should have done it? Well, according to some people would say, oh, if the government spent $1 that wasn't a smashing success, then that's a total waste. And, and that's the debate we have to have now is how we think about, comes back to industrial policy and how do we think about um, the government's role in developing uh, new and supporting new technologies that in the long run, you have to have a long game uh, that could actually be incredible, not just beneficial, but critical to the United States national security and economic security, especially in this age where China has been working on this for 10 years and they've been subsidizing the hell out of it. Gabrielle Coppola is an auto industry reporter at Bloomberg. We were talking about her Bloomberg Business Week feature called uh, America's Long Tortured Journey to Build EV Batteries. Really great story. I think so relevant to the conversations today. And thanks for joining us to talk through it. Thank you for your interest. I really enjoyed it. That is the show. The Carbon Copy is a co-production of Postscript Media and Canary Media. This episode was produced by me. It was uh, mixed by our engineer, Sean Marquand. He also made our theme music. And original music in the episode came from Echo Finch, Epidemic Sounds, and Blue Dot Sessions. We are supported by Prelude Ventures. Prelude supports startups and entrepreneurs in energy, food and agriculture, transportation, logistics, advanced materials, manufacturing, and advanced computing. And if you want to support this show, hook us up with a rating and review on Apple or Spotify and um, send a link around to a colleague or a friend who you think would like the show. Thanks for sticking with us. I will catch you next time. I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Carbon Copy.